How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore me to the joy of my salvation. Open my lips in praise, O God, and then I will be able to teach transgressors their ways and sinners will be converted to you. Father, thank you that a broken and contrite heart you do not despise. Thank you that when there's failure in the Christian life that we can come and confess our sin, that Christ's blood is not only sufficient to save us, but to forgive us from all of the guilt of sin. You've told us, you've commanded us that when we open the Scriptures that our hearts are to be clear. So we come in a sense of humility today, wanting Christ to speak. We just sang it to you, Father, show us Christ. The Scriptures you said are about Him. So help us to fall more in love with Him, to be more faithful to Him. Spirit of God, work in each and every heart, wherever people may be. To those who need you as Savior, show them today their need. Only you can convince them. And to those of us who have crossed that line and by your grace and mercy have come to know you as Lord, grow us deeper, shape us, mold us, that we might reflect the Lord Jesus in every way that you, Jesus, might be glorified. So please come and help me, fill me, and anoint me, and use me, because without you I can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. And we thank you in your holy and precious name, Jesus. Amen. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation, it's a book that will capture your attention. It will stir your imagination. And I promise you it's a book that will give you a picture of the grand and glorious future that God has for His people and for His church. If you are joining us for the first time, this is the sixth message in the book of Revelation. We've covered some critical foundational truths. You might want to get the Search the Scriptures app, the app store, searchthescriptures.org, download it into your phone and listen to some of the introductory messages. It will be very, very helpful to you. Chronologically, Revelation falls right where it needs to be. It is the very last book that God penned through a man. It's the conclusion of the Bible. And in this, the last book, John will describe for us the final consummation of all things. The apocalypse, apocalypsis, it means revelation and unveiling. It's singular, not revelations. This is not the book of revelations. This is the book of revelation. There is one single unveiling. And what's amazing to me is a book that unveils Christ for us seems so mysterious to so many people. In fact, it is one of the least preached books in all of the Bible. But it's a book that God promises blessing if we will read it and study it and meditate on it. And one of the reasons it's so mysterious is because like a great mosaic, the Old Testament is woven all the way through it. Of the 404 verses, there are 278 specific allusions to the Old Testament. None of them are introduced like David said or Isaiah said or... Uh, no, there, there's just a, a, a direct reference to the Old Testament. And so for many, because they no longer know the Old Testament, it's a closed book to them, they can't really understand Revelation. And some, because they have misunderstood God's promises to the nation of Israel, don't really grasp Revelation. But we're going to go through it slowly. I preach for an hour every week. You should be glad when I came in the early years. Jerry, remember, I preached an hour and a half every week. I said, we're going to separate the men from the boys. We're going to find out who's interested. And so we're here to read and study the Word of God because there's great power in the Scripture. We want to begin this morning in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. Follow along. It's where we left off last time. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? 
The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. You know, I was a little boy when we had our first fast food restaurants in America. I was amazed that McDonald's could advertise a meal for under a dollar with change back. They had two initial goals, all the fast food changes. One was speed and the other was cost. And they would try to deliver your meal in under 90 seconds. Well, times have changed and people want more and you have groups like Starbucks and and uh, Subway, and they offer a lot of alternatives and flexibility, and it takes longer. If you are a fast food aficionado, then as I am, then you know that website, uh, hackthemmenu.com. You know that? I see some of you writing it down. At least I guess you take notes once in the sermon, all right? <laughs> and what it does for you at hack, hackthemmenu.com is it gives you some of the secret items that fast foods will offer you if you will ask for them. I like Bojangles, and I should. The owner is sitting over here to our right of our two Bojangles in, in our county. And if you go to Bojangles, you can order the Dirty Bird Sandwich. It's on the website. The Dirty Bird sand, Sandwich is you take the, the, the Cajun sandwich that they offer, and you put dirty rice on either side. I, I love it. I enjoy it. I ask for it. They look at me cross-eyed. But in either case, they recognize flexibility is critically important in this day, especially to the younger generation. Well, flexibility is not important to the church. There are some age-old truths that are not to be changed no matter what. We have, I just checked the uh, population clock before I came into this service. I was off by a million. I guesstimated it at the last service. There are 325 million Americans Last week it was reported 234 million have no church home. 234 million out of the 325 million have no church home. Now, people are trying to attract them. One church online advertises this. There is no fire and brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical, witty messages. Still another church writes on their website, services at our church have an informal feel. You won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make you feel welcome, not to drive you away. Another church advertising under the rainbow flag says, we believe some people ought to be gay, so get over it. Still another says, it doesn't matter how many times you've been born to join. Listen, a lot of evangelical churches are now trying to be flexible. And sometimes they promote, I think, their churches in the wrong way. They say the coffee is great, the music, it's really cool. The pastor's sermons are short and non-confrontational. I don't know about you, but I come here to worship. I come here to have my spirit stirred, to be encouraged with the saints, to hear, not just to you, but for my own heart, the Word of God. Biblically speaking, the worship service, according to 1 Corinthians 14 and the pastoral epistles, is not to be designed for the unbeliever. And that's the huge mistake that churches all across our land have done. They've created a worship service for the unbeliever. And when I meet people from these fluff churches, I call them churches that have the gospel, but it's just fluff usually a 50-50 chance they even know what the gospel is. How sad, how pathetic. The worship service, the Bible says, is for the believer. In fact, the unbeliever comes in as a guest. God assumes we will get them there because we care about them. 
But 1 Corinthians 14.25 says, when the word of God is proclaimed, the unbeliever will come in and he will fall on his face when his heart is convicted and he will worship the living God. Now, flexibility may be okay for fast food, but it's not okay for the church. There are eternal, non-compromisable truths and methodologies that God has given. But so many are so ignorant of the Word of God today that if you don't use these methodologies, they think you've missed it when in reality they have. Well, the church at Pergamum had compromised. It was very, very sad. Now, I noted for you last time that each of these seven churches have a typical format. Jesus begins with a characteristic of himself. And the characteristic that he chooses reflects the need or the encouragement or the rebuke that the given church needs. And maybe some of you took my challenge and you went back into chapter 1 where six of the seven characteristic traits are given. There's one church where Christ doesn't draw from the first chapter, and we'll talk about that when we come to it. With two of the churches, Sardis and Laodicea, uh, Jesus has um, nothing good to say about them, but just rebukes them directly. With two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, he has nothing bad to say about them, and just commends them. With three of the churches, he says something good, then he says something bad. But with all of the churches, Jesus then gives an admonition. So we studied Ephesus. It was the formal, preoccupied church of sorts. They were doctrinally as straight as an arrow, but they had left their first love. Not lost it. You don't lose your love. You leave it. It's a choice. It's a willful decision. Then we came to the church at Smyrna, and we saw that they were the fearful, persecuted church. And so Jesus told them not to fear. They were standing strong, and because of that, many were experiencing harm. Today we come to a faltering church, a politically correct church, the church at Pergamum. If you want to use your note-taking outline, we want to begin with Christ's word of commendation for Pergamum, his word of commendation. Notice how it opens, verse 12, unto the angel of the church in Pergamum write. Now, if you were here in our study of the first two churches, we saw that the word angelos, angel, malach in Hebrew, angel, can refer to a human messenger or to a heavenly messenger. And I gave you many examples. The word angel can have a literal or functional fulfillment or definition or both. And so I gave you examples of people in the Bible who are called angels. So is he speaking here to a literal angel? No, because angels do not preach and teach or run the local church. Pastors do. He's speaking to a particular pastor. So you're looking at Angel Carl this morning, all right? Now, some say that he's uh, affirming that there should only be one pastor in the local church. Clearly not. Scripture must interpret Scripture. Jesus affirms the teaching that there's a plurality of elders in the local church, but there's a leader amongst equals. And so virtually any church, if it's 10,000 or 3,000, if they have multiple pastors, typically one person is deemed the leader, but he's an equal. He's an equal, and yet he is the leader. And so Jesus is speaking to the leader of these churches. They're in a place called Asia. Not the continent of Asia, remember. This is the province of Asia. Today, it would take up the space that we typically call Turkey. Some of your Bibles say Pergamos. Some of your Bibles say Pergamum. The feminine form is Pergamos. The neuter form, which is actually found in the Greek New Testament, is Pergamum. So I prefer with what the Greek actually says, but the translator many times will use the name that was most common to people in that day, and it was a feminine form. In either case, don't be thrown by that. You can see here on the map that um, this uh, city, remember the horseshoe of seven churches? We started down in Philadelphia, then we went to Smyrna, 35 miles north, and now we're going 55 miles north of Smyrna, or 85 miles north of Ephesus, to this church called Pergamon. Or Pergamum. And it was nicknamed the city of the serpent. The city of the serpent. Now, Ephesus, if you remember, we saw was largely, first and foremost, a political city. Why? Because it was the capital city of this place called Asia. Today we call it Asia Minor to distinguish it sometimes from the continent 
of Asia. Then we came to Smyrna, and that was kind of not the Washington, D.C. like Ephesus, but it was the New York. It was the commercial center of this province, and in many ways, the ancient world. And today, we come to a place that is really the religious cultural center of Asia. Uh, there are two great libraries in the first century. One was in Alexandria in Egypt, the largest library in the known world. The second was here in Pergamum with over 200,000 volumes. Remember, this was pre-printing press, all handwritten. In fact, when Mark Anthony conquered the city, he uh, took all of the books and they, he brought them to his lover, Cleopatra. But it's also known as a healing slash medical center. People would come here because of healings that were performed here. Um, There was a medical center, maybe Dr. Luke, because there was only a few cities in the ancient world that had a medical school, and this was one of them. But this medical school was different from what we would think of today. They mixed medicine with spirituality, and they would integrate the gods of the ancient world into their medical practices. Here you have a picture of the altar of Zeus. You see it there. This is actually a replica. If you go to Berlin, you can see it in the museum. Hitler reproduced the altar that was in Pergamum, and he made it the symbol of the Third Reich. Now, this was a demonized city. It was literally a city where Satan makes his throne. So I'm not surprised that Hitler would take an object and want to reproduce it for himself. In either case, among the pantheon of gods, one of the gods that was very well known and highly esteemed was not only Zeus, but a god named Nike. Uh, the temple of Nike was here. Some of you wear Nike sneakers or running shoes, and the word Nike means victory or power. But one of the most popular gods after which the uh, mascot of the city was made was a god named Asclepius. And Asclepius was a healing god of sorts in this pantheon of gods. And Asclepius was to this city of Pergamum what Lords is to Roman Catholics. Some of you know about the apparition that some children had in Lourdes in 1858. Three children, two said they heard the voice of the Virgin Mary, and one child named Bernadette Subrius, she said she not only heard, but she saw Mary. And on that day in 1858, they said hundreds of people were healed, and if you've ever been to Lourdes, there's thousands of crutches and testimonies and writings and plaques of all the people who have been healed there. Now, in 1854, Pope Pius IX officially made a dogma in the Roman church. Some had believed it on the basis of tra- tradition, but the Pope spoke ex cathedra from his chair on an issue of faith and morals, so in their minds it became absolute truth. And they said, Mary was conceived without sin. We speak of the Immaculate Conception of Christ, as they do, but they also speak of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And so then when this so-called apparition happened, and all these people were healed with greater fervor, people began in an idolatrous way to worship Mary, as many do to our day. You say, do you think people were healed at Lord's? I have no doubt they were probably healed. Satan is the great imitator. Jesus warned in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 that in the last days, people will come and do great signs and wonders and miracles in his name, but you are not to be deceived. Doctrine must always test miracles. Miracles do not test doctrine. The scripture is always authoritative over experience. And so what these people did is they asked their gods to heal them, and they mixed medicine with spirituality. They would go, here's a picture of the uh, temple of Asclepius. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with mixing spirituality with medicine. I hope you do. You don't want to be like King Asa, who sought the physicians and didn't seek God, and God was disappointed. You want to be like King Hezekiah, who sought God and then used medical means to heal him. Some of you, you go to the doctor, he gives you your prescription, you think, praise the Lord, I don't have to pray about anything, just take my pills. Mm -hmm. Now, unless it's something really serious, some of us don't even pray. But we are to mix faith with medicine. Nothing wrong with that. God's not against medicine. So here is a, a picture of a statue that actually came out of this very city, Pergamum, immaculately preserved. 
This is Asclepius, and he's got his staff with the snake wrapped around it. Some of you have seen it on the back of an ambulance. Sometimes it's a single-headed, sometimes it's a double-headed snake, or you've seen it on the front of a medical center or hospital. It comes from Asclepius, but where does that come from? It comes from Numbers chapter 21. Satan is a great imitator. There are some 270 flood stories around the world. Some that reflect very closely the biblical accounts, some that are, you wouldn't even recognize it, but they speak of a worldwide flood. Where did that come from? The original story, scattered through the Tower of Babel, where languages and people groups went across the world, and so now there are over 270 flood stories. Well, the devil would sometimes take a magnificent symbol, just like the rainbow has been perverted in our day. So this symbol has been perverted from Numbers chapter 21. Also in this city was emperor worship. We spoke a little bit about that last time. If you were here when we studied the church in Smyrna, where once a year, as a good Roman citizen, you would offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. And it was as much a political move as it was a spiritual move because Rome had brought such prosperity to the empire and such peace. People were grateful for that. The world was a difficult place to live and Rome with their authority established a, a, a world that was much more livable. So in 29 BC, they built a temple to one of the emperors and then during the time of Jesus, they built two more temples. But for a Christian, he could not bow down once a year and do that. It wasn't just a spiritual thing. Understand that there are a host of gods. You could worship anyone that you wanted. As long as once a year, you said Caesar is Lord. And not to, well, it was considered tantamount to treason. But a Christian couldn't do that. Paul tells us why. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say, Christos, Kurios, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So here was a church that was birthed in a very, very pagan place, and Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now remember, each of the descriptions is reflective of the atmosphere of the church and what they needed to hear. And there are seven titles. Again, go back. You will find six of them in the first chapter. Match them up to the given church. And come and tell me. Only two people have told me that they've done. I'm sure more of you have. Well, we talked about the seven stars that represent Ephesus. And we talked about the significance of that. Last time, we talked about the significance of the first and the last as it related to Smyrna. But here, out of his mouth came a sharp, Two-edged sword. That's what Revelation 1.16 says. You might want to put that in the margin. Revelation 1.16 and also Revelation 19.15. When he comes again, he comes on a white charger on a white horse with a sharp two-edged sword protruding from his mouth. Now, the word here for sword, there's a number of words for sword in Greek, and the word you chose was reflective of the instrument used. This was a sword of judgment. It was a sword that was used in war. It was the same sword used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where David takes a sword and cuts off Goliath's head. It's the same word used in the Septuagint of the cherubim who keep people from participating in their sinful state in the tree of life. And in Ephesians, it's used of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so, remember, we saw in the opening verse that this revelation is signified, it's signified, it's communicated through symbols. So one of our challenges is you try to discern what the symbol means, and then you literally believe it. And so God uses this symbol to describe the Word of God. And Christ is speaking as one who is authoritative. And remember, he's living, he's addressing a city who thought that the emperor had the final word. And Jesus wants them to know, no, he has the final word. He is the ultimate authority. This same word, by the way, is used in Romans 13. If you were here in our exposition of Romans we saw that the sword is also a symbol of the government's authority. Jesus has the final word, and Jesus is the final government. The prophet said, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And someday we will see that. And someday this authoritative one will speak, 
And everything that he says will be carried out in judgment. This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is the Lord of glory and all of his authority. Now, the Lord commends them in two realms. First, they were loyal to the Lord's person. They were loyal to the Lord's person. Again, in verse 12, and to the angel of the church at Pergamon, right? The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. Twice over in these verses, we are told that Satan's throne is in this city and that Satan dwells in this city. That's an intriguing description where Satan's throne is. And it tells us something about Satan. Number one, he's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not, uh, he's not omnipotent. He is limited. He is a finite created being, though it seems he has tremendous power and he does because he has Tens of thousands upon thousands upon thousands. There are millions of angels, as we will see before we're done with the revelation. And a third of the millions upon millions upon millions of angels fell and rebelled. And so Satan, he operates in the heavenly realm, but he also operates in the earthly realm. He doesn't have a throne in hell that he's sitting on. He is called in the scripture, the God, small g, of this world. He's the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He is that evil fallen being who has millions and millions of demons who work on people. Sometimes one demon just needs to work on one person, and that one person can craft a way of thinking that will cause thousands and thousands and thousands of people to fall. We saw in Daniel chapter 10 that Satan has demons assigned to different countries. He has demons assigned to different cities. So for whatever reason, obviously because these people were so open to his work, he decided at least in the first century to make this his throne. Again, he's a limited finite being. The devil can't have his throne in Buford and be in Dallas at the same time. He can't be in Las Vegas and New York at the same time. He's limited, he's created, but he's very, very organized. And one of the things that he does is through his falsehood, he heals falsely. And so the symbol of the city was Asclepius. He was the mascot of the city. He is the God who supposedly healed, and they had a magnificent temple. This was a city that sits a 1,000 feet above sea level. It has kind of a cone-shaped acropolis, and um, they had this temple there built to this false god, and people would spend the night there. They'd go to the city to dip in the waters, and they said they would be healed, and many, I suppose, were. Again, the devil does miracles. And they would go into the temple of Asclepius, and they would lay on the floor all night, and the priests would loose non poisonous snakes. And if one snake crawled over you and touched you, you were supposedly healed. Now, I didn't give you his full name. His full name is Asclepius. You can spell it a few different ways. Soter, S-O-T-E-R. Many of you know the Greek word soter. It means savior. Asclepius, the savior. And so the staff of Asclepius, pictured here, uh, bring it up, there we go, right out of Pergamum, this pole with a snake wrapped around it was the mascot of the city. It's called a caduceus. My dad was an ophthalmologist, a medical doctor, and I can still see his license plate, MD2254. And on the left side was this symbol. It was a symbol of medicine, and doctors in that state were given the privilege to carry that on their license plate. And he loved it during the gas crisis because he could skip the lines and go right up to the front of the line and get a full, full up. We loved it too. Anyway, but it's a, it's a distortion, just like there's over 270 flood stories. The devil takes God's symbol and he poisons it. Where does it come from? Many of you aren't are new to the Bible, so let me just share by way of review. For the rest of you, bear with me. Numbers 21. Uh, the context was the children of Israel had, had left Egypt. Uh, the end of, um, they're out there in the wilderness, and God is being gracious and good to them and providing for them supernaturally. And Moses says, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable bread, you could translate it. The Lord sent fiery or poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. 
because we've spoken against the Lord and you intercede or pray with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And so Moses interceded or prayed for the people. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, on a pole. It shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on the standard, on the pole. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And of course, this whole brazen serpent illustration or reality becomes an illustration of what Jesus is going to accomplish centuries later. Now, it seems rather strange that God would say, take a snake made out of bronze, set it on a pole. Why up on a pole? Because God cared about his people. 600,000 men, so about 2 million, leave Egypt. A lot of folks. And so it's up high. And if anyone will just believe the promise God made, God said, just look and you will instantly be healed. Now, some thought that was utter foolishness. Others believed. And centuries later, Jesus meets a man by the name of Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher of the Jews, and he tells him of his need to be saved and to help him to understand. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him and the Son of Man and Jesus may have eternal life. God healed the people of Israel anticipating the ultimate healing that he wanted to give by typology. The solution to the serpent program problem was not to make serpent anti-serpent medicine. It was not to pass anti-serpent laws. None of those things. It was not to pretend that the snakes weren't there. The solution was to believe what God said, look and you will live. And anyone who looked, lived. And he said, the Son of Man must, must be lifted up. Not by accident. It was planned before the foundations of the world that the Messiah would come and die on a bloody cross, that he'd be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. And then the most quoted verse in all of the Bible, many don't understand the context. The next verse says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Satan takes this magnificent symbol and he perverts it. Just as uh, Satan gets Catholics to worship at Lord's, And he takes some magnificent things. Mary was a magnificent lady that she would be chosen to carry the Messiah. Sometimes as Protestants, we don't esteem her enough in terms of that God would choose her out of all women born. But we don't worship her. We don't pray to her. And so here was a church in a city where Satan literally decided to set up his throne and the symbol, the mascot of the city was a serpent on a pole. So Jesus says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. That's encouraging. I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know what it's like to be there in the city of Pergamum. And Christ knows where you live today. He knows where some of you have a spouse that's abusive. He understands that. He knows where some of you stand out as a sore thumb at work or at school because of your stance for Jesus. He knows the problems and the heartaches that you are going through. And in the midst of this city where Satan had set up his throne, where this church was born, nonetheless, he said, you hold fast my name. These were people who were loyal to the person or the name of Christ, because in Scripture, the name of Jesus or the name of Yahweh designates who he is. And you see that illustrated all the way through Scripture. In Acts 5.41, it says, So they went on their way, the apostles, they went on their way from the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing, why? That they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They stood up, And they preached Jesus, and they were persecuted for the name of Jesus. Now, had they whispered his name, had they been very, very quiet about his name, had the church in Pergamum not stood up and held fast the name of Jesus, there would be no persecution. And some of you, 
you've never had anything bad said about you because you don't talk about Jesus except to Christians in safe zones. But you won't talk about Jesus. You're afraid what people might think of you. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And understand that the world doesn't like the name of Christ. Unless someone is on their way to Jesus, unless they are not resisting the revelation of God, people will hate you sometimes for the name of Jesus. Listen, the name of Jesus is central to the Bible. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter stood up and said, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in the name of Jesus. Jesus taught blessing is found in his name. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Look, I'm glad for our live stream this morning for mothers who are home with sick kids, for elderly invalids who have to be there in their living room to be able to participate. And for other countries of the world, we get a printout every week where people are watching other states that are in different time zones. But if you're here in Buford or Hilton Head and you're home because you're lazy and don't want to get up and you'd rather watch church from your bed than with the saints, you're missing a blessing of God. One, it's selfish because God calls us to encourage one another to stir one another to love and good deeds. You can't do that from your easy chair at home. But there's a special blessing when God's people come together that is distinctly different, where two or three are gathered. And so there's blessing in the name. There's salvation in the name. There's answered prayer in the name of Jesus. Remember, Peter and John, they meet the man at the gate called Beautiful. And Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. The religious authorities got all bent out of shape over that miracle and the preaching that followed it. And so they said, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer in this name. Why? Because they understood there was authority in the name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They knew there was power in this name. And persecution came for holding fast to their his name. And that's what the church at Pergamum knew. Listen, I love to hear on Wednesday nights when we gather together and to hear our saints pray in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. It's not just something we tack on the end of a prayer. We are acknowledging that we have no righteousness in ourselves, and we are coming to the Father through the Son. Years ago, when I was at Duke University, we not only worked with undergraduates, but the different graduate schools, and I had a Bible study in the Divinity School. Can you imagine that, that you needed a Bible study in the Divinity School, because most of the Divinity School students were lost? It was very, very, very sad what happens there at Duke. But we also started a Bible study in the business school. And for whatever reason, God just blessed it. It just grew and grew. And all these MBA students there in the Fuquay School of Business were coming to Christ. We had about 25 students. And they convinced the dean of the school that at their graduation, they wanted Pastor Carl Brogy to come and preach. Uh, not to preach, but to pray, to do the invocation. And so the dean calls me. And I said, I would be honored to do that. Oh, he said, there's one stipulation. You can't pray in Jesus' name. I know you're an outspoken Christian, but you can't pray in Jesus' name. I said, well, look, I'm not going to deceive you and tell you I won't and then come and do it. But if I can't pray in Jesus' name, I'm not praying. You got the wrong man. You should never be ashamed of Jesus' name. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus' name means that he is Lord, the Savior of the world. And it doesn't matter that people are offended. And these people were loyal to his person. They were loyal to his name. Secondly, they were loyal to his precepts. They were loyal to the Lord's precepts, to his commandments. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. These Christians would not deny the name of the Lord Jesus, nor would they deny the faith of the Lord Jesus. You did not deny my faith. And we are living in a day of compromise where churches want to be politically correct 
And in the process, they compromise Jesus' faith. Look, I am not ashamed this morning that I believe in a Bible that's infallible, inerrant, and absolutely authoritative. I am not ashamed today to say that I believe Jesus was literally born of a virgin, virgin conceived. You say that's impossible. Yes, it is. But God is the God of the impossible. I am not ashamed today to say that I believe the blood of Jesus and only Christ's substitutionary death on the cross can save you. I am not ashamed today to say that he literally, not spiritually, physically actually came out of the grave and that he will literally actually physically come again to judge the living and the dead. Listen, the faith of Jesus is built on the word of God. And I am not ashamed to say that the moral dictates of God has not changed, that homosexuality, adultery, fornication, drunkenness, murder, and any other vile, wicked act you can think of are still wrong and they will be always wrong because God's word is forever settled in heaven. And it may sound trite to you, but I believe a church that God can bless is a church that believes in the book, the blood, and the blessed hope. And that's what we preach here. And I make no apology for it. Now, there was a man, there was a man in the church. His name was Antipas. And he didn't care what people thought about him. He wasn't going to budge. And so we read here, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Antipas basically said, the faith of the Lord Jesus is my faith. God said it, I believe it, I'm not moving an inch. Many think that he was one of the pastors there in the church. External biblical sources say that, and external biblical sources say that he died and that he was baked and broiled in a large brazen bowl. They said, we're going to kill you. In essence, he said, if you want to kill me, you're going to kill me. But I'm going to be faithful to the faith of Jesus. Church history records just a few years later that there were two stone cutters in the city of Pergamum who refused Diocletian's order to carve out an image of Asclepolos, this snake god. They said, we will not do it. And so they killed those two men because they refused to make the city's mascot. This was Satan's throne. And those two men would rather be loyal to Jesus than to be nice. And really, when you're loyal to Jesus, you're not mean and hateful as some people say I am. You're nice. Because when you tell people the truth, that's the most gracious thing that you can do. But when you begin to twist doctrines, when you begin to uh, reject the clear moral standards of God, then you're the worst, meanest, ugliest person you could be Because when you lower God's standard, which is God's schoolmaster, tutor, to point you to Jesus, there's, look, if homosexuality is not wrong, I'm okay. If adultery is not wrong, I'm okay. If drunkenness is not wrong, okay. Because there's no standard that convicts me and shows me that I am wrong. And that's an ugly thing to do. So here is his brother, Antipas. I look forward to meeting him in heaven. He was my witness. The faithful witness, Jesus says. By the way, that's the same phrase that's used of Jesus in the first chapter. He's the faithful witness. And the word witness is the Greek word martyr. We get our word martyr. You could translate it either way. He's the faithful witness. And in his case, he was also the faithful martyr. So here are some people faithful to the Lord's person, faithful to his precepts, and Jesus commends them for it. Secondly, Christ's word of correction for the church at Pergamum. Not only do they have a word of commendation, they have a word of correction. Let me read verses 14 to 16 so you get the flow and then we'll step through it. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, even though this was a wonderful church, they needed some correction because they had embraced the teachings of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember, teaching will influence you. 
As a man believes, so he will behave. And so the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, repeatedly say that pastors are to teach sound doctrine. The word sound is a medical term from the first century. Healthy doctrine. Because healthy doctrine creates healthy churches and healthy people and healthy families. And so we don't want to teach something that is wrong, that is unhealthy. And you don't want to teach your children or grandchildren. Some of you have grandchildren and you've come and told me and they're living in sin and you're afraid to tell them the truth because you might, they might get mad at you. Some of your grandkids are living that way. Speak the truth in love. You say, look, I love you and you can do absolutely nothing to ever make me stop loving you. But God's word is clear. And so what exactly was Balaam all about? Let's talk about it. First, on your outline, they were to repent over the teaching of Balaam. So who is this guy, Balaam? He says, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now, Balaam was a Gentile. We know that from Scripture. He called himself a prophet of God. God called him a soothsayer. Uh, You might want to go home, just put out in the margin, Numbers 22 through 25, and also Numbers 31. If you read 22 to 25, you don't read 31, where God gives us divine commentary, you'll miss a lot. Now, we can't deal with those chapters in full this morning, but let me give you kind of a synopsis of them. The children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, The 40 years of wandering was basically over, and the king of Moab, a guy named Balak, recognized that these Israelis were going to come into what they called the promised land. And so he wanted this guy, this prophet, so to speak, Balaam, to curse them. So he sent a pulpit committee to to Balaam the prophet. He says, Balaam, I'll pay you good money. I just want you to do one thing. Curse the children of Israel. Now remember, Satan has power. And this man must have somehow displayed power in the past that this king would be willing to pay him money for his services. So Balaam inquired of the God of Israel, which was typical for a pagan. Whatever God you're dealing with, you inquire of that God. And many times you'd get a response back from other gods because behind false gods, the Bible teaches our demons. But on this occasion, the one true God, the God of Israel, responded to Balaam. We read in Numbers 22, 12, and God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So from the outset, God told Balaam not to help Balak. So at first, Balaam obeyed, and he sends back messengers to the pulpit committee. He says, no, the God of Israel says, I I can't curse you, I'm sorry. So they send back a new committee of more distinguished people. The beautiful people come, more money. They said, look, we just want you to curse it. He said, hmm, let me pray about this. So he prays about it. You know, sometimes when you resist God long enough, God will say, go ahead and do it. He'll, he'll let you have your way because he won't go against your free will. So he lets him have his way. But in the process, his donkey is stopped on three occasions. Remember, the donkey is scared to death. And he is stopped by the angel of the Lord. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Before he ever took on human flesh in Bethlehem, there's some select times in the Old Testament he shows up, not as an angel, but the angel of Yahweh. He's called God himself. And so Balaam says, what, what, what are you doing? He says, I'm stopping. Why are you hitting me? I've been a good donkey my whole life, and I've served you my whole life. Why are you hurting me? And Balaam said, if I had a sword, I'd put it through you right now. And the amazing thing to me is not that God can make a donkey talk. Look, if God can make a parrot talk, he can make your dog talk or anything else he wants to talk. Amazing thing to me is that that Balaam is talking back to the donkey. But the analogy is clear. Balaam, you're the donkey. You should try to do a good job like your donkey did. And just like I put words in the mouth of the donkey, I'm going to put words in your mouth. So the king gets him. He stands on this ridge where he overlooks the children of Israel. And he goes to curse the children of Israel. And the Spirit of God comes on this unbeliever and he speaks truth through him and he can't curse the king of Israel, the children of Israel. And the king says, what are you doing? I paid you good money. He says, I can't do it. 
Yahweh won't let me do it, but I've got a prize idea by which you can still pay me. I can get the God of Israel to curse the children of Israel. You get some of those pretty young women from Moab, you send them down there in the camp, and they can put on all their seductivity, and the children of Israel will fornicate with those women, and God will curse them. And that's exactly what the king did in 24,000 Jewish men died that day. And in Numbers 31, when Moses at the end of his life recounts what happened, he says, behold these, referring to the woman of Moab, behold these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. And Jesus takes this Old Testament illustration and says here in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching, the counsel of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And by the way, if you've read Numbers 31, God ends up killing this false prophet with a sword. I find that interesting, because here's Jesus with a two-edged sword protruding from his mouth, and he ultimately judges this man by way of type and illustration with a sword. And so what is the counsel of Balaam? What is the teaching of Balaam? It's mixing together the things of God with the things of the world. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. It's corruption that can come into your life or into a church or into a nation when you mix truth with error. So our government still says murder is wrong, but homosexuality is right. And we mix the two. And churches are doing the same thing. They mix the teachings of the world with the teachings of God. And Peter tells us that we're not to do that, that we are to repent, that judgment is to begin first with the household of faith. And I want to tell you, there are some great churches that were once in our community. And I used to read the history of some of these churches that sent missionaries and had revivals. And today they are apostate and a million miles away from God because they are mixing the teachings of the world with the teachings of the word. And when you do that, God will curse a church. God will take his hand off of a church. God says friendship with the world, that is with its principles, not with the people. We are to care for their souls like someone cared for yours and so you're here today. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. And when a church ignores sin, they are mixing worldliness with the word. This week it about broke my heart. I went and saw a man who used to be a member of this church. And I just found out, I wish I'd known two years ago, that he divorced his wife so that he could live with his daughter's teacher. And I went to him, I said, I'm not your pastor anymore, so I can't exercise church discipline on you. But I want you to go home and read 1 Corinthians 5. Because God's word is clear. And I'm going to commit you to the Lord for the destruction of your flesh. It's not too late yet. You could still go back and take your wife who I found out would take him back in a heartbeat. And you could fix it. But you see, people don't exercise church. People ask, what's church discipline sometimes? I see you do that. I've never heard that. I've been here for 27 years and we've done it over 50 times. Most of the time, you never hear about it. I dealt with another man this week, first level, and I think it's over. Thank God. Sometimes it stops at the first or second level. Or sometimes, like a few months ago at a Wednesday night service, you came to the whole church. That's when we do in-house discipline. And sometimes a person is put out of the church because they refuse to repent. And when they refuse to repent, 1 Corinthians 5 teaches you are removed from the protective umbrella of the church. 
And those elders are then saying, God, we are giving this person over, if necessary, to the devil for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that he might repent. You say that's harsh. That's the most loving thing you can do. When a church mixes the teaching of the world with the Word, God comes with His sword on that church. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. If you're thinking about meeting up with some lady tomorrow, man, don't do it. Young lady, if you're thinking of meeting some man who's married for lunch tomorrow, don't do it. If you truly know Jesus, you will meet God in discipline. And so here's the devil. He thinks, you know, if I can't curse these people, then I'll corrupt these people. And so what Satan could not do from without, he did with great success from within. And so here's Jesus. He corrects the church first over their teaching of Balaam, now over the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Look at verse 15. We're almost done. Stay with me. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus warns the teaching of the Nicolaitans is not to be something allowed in the church. So what is the teaching of the Nicolaitans? This is a composite, untranslated word, kind of like baptizo. Nikao, the, you know, the god of Nike or victory or power. There's the word Nikao that means to rule or to conquer. And there's the word laos, which means people. And so the sin of the Nicolaitans was when you have people in the church, leaders in the church, who are people rulers. Where there was a clergy, ecclesiastical versus lady distinction, an artificial distinction, where you have, you know, a plain member, and then you have a minister, so to speak. As the decades passed, by about 95 AD, when this book is written, that had already begun to form where you had some people who were in an unhealthy way ruling over the people, who were not so much shepherds as they were demagogues. Now understand, there's this balance in Scripture, and we're not to violate the balance. On the one hand, you have these people who today ignore biblical leadership. And yet 1 Timothy 5.17 speaks of elders who rule. Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders. For they give watch over your soul. And so the church is not a democracy. There are leaders that God puts in it. But those leaders are not to be demagogues. They are to be shepherds. They were to care for the people. Occasionally, a new Christian or maybe a visitor will come up after me in the, out in the hallway and they'll say, oh, Father Brogy, I have a question for you. And I say, look, I'm not Father Brogy. Now, you can call me Pastor Brogy if you want, or you can call me Brother Brogy, but I'm not Father Brogy. Look, if you call me Father, you look up to me. If you call me Brother, you look to me. I'm your brother. Do not, Jesus said, call anyone on earth your father. He's not talking about a child calling his daddy, papa, abba, He's using it in an ecclesiastical way. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He who is in heaven, do not be called leaders, for one who is your leader, that is Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. In some churches, the history of it is they call everybody brother. Hey, brother Solomon, brother this, brother that. It actually comes back historically to them dealing with the sin of the Nicolaitans, not wanting to be guilty of it. You say, Pastor Carl, that's wonderful. You're coming down to my level. No, I'm bringing you up to my level because there's not one minister in this church. Every minister is sitting out here in these seats. We are all believer priests. That's one of the great doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. And so unlike the Ephesian church who hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the church at Pergamum was holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans in an unhealthy way where there was this clergy-laity distinction. And so since the church is the body of Christ, Satan tried to first corrupt the body. And since Jesus is the head of the church, he then tried to replace the head. And so the church... And Pergamum was corrupted by the teaching of Balaam, and the church in Pergamum was replaced by Jesus by the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so Jesus, caring for these people, says, verse 16, therefore repent, or else 
I am coming to you quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. It's an heiress imperative. Stop it right now. Change right now. Change your mind right now. See, there's a lot of people who come to church on Sunday who feel guilty over what they did Saturday night, but on Monday they're planning to do the same thing all over again. That's not repentance. Or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. You see those two pronouns? Maybe you should underline them. They're verse 16, the word you and the word them. Those are two important pronouns that refer to this group called the church at Pergamum. The first you is not plural, but in Greek it is singular. It refers back to the angel in verse 1, to the senior pastor. Understand there is no church buildings. And so in a church like Pergamum, they met in houses in different places. Some churches had houses across the city, and you had pastors in each house, and, and, and then you have a senior pastor where maybe on occasion, as Josephus records, they would all come together. But generally, they met in different homes. And so here was a senior pastor who needed to do what was right. He needed to stop what was happening in terms of this moral compromise and in terms of this false ecclesiastical laity distinction. And the them referring to these who had embraced the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans needed to stop as well. Otherwise, Jesus was going to come and he was going to judge this church. This is why, as a pastor, I take very seriously church discipline. Because if I don't, God's going to judge me. If I know that there's someone who is living in open sin, look, we're all sinners, but not all sin deserves church discipline. But there are some kinds of sin that the New Testament isolates that require and invite the discipline of the local pastors. And if we don't do that, if we just turn the other way, God will take his blessing off of that church. Now, just quickly in closing, Christ's word of comfort for this church. It comes on two levels. First, he promises the overcomer, the overcomer in verse 17 is infinite resources. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've already noted that this is not just written to one church, but the church is meaning all seven, plus like the church at Rome or Corinth or Ephesus that have other letters written to them, it applies to us as well. So this applies to every church. And he says, to him who overcomes, I will give him the hidden manner. Overcomers, who are they? This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And our faith is built on the Word of God. And if you choose by faith to do what is right on the basis of the Word of God, there's a promise you will eat of the hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? Well, there was a jar of manna that no one had ever tasted. And it was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant that no one could open. It was in the Holy of Holies. Hidden manna. He promises manna, the psalmist says, was angel food. They had never had this. And Jesus is promising these believers, because remember, in John chapter 6, he says the manna in the Old Testament was me. I represented the manna. It was round. That spoke of his eternality. It was white. It spoke of his purity. It was, uh, uh, they had to pick it up off the ground that pictured uh his resurrection and so forth. There's beautiful typology all the way through the manna. And he is saying to this church that if you will be an overcomer, if you will choose to do what is right, I'm going to give you the life-giving power and sustenance that manna gave the children of Israel. But then he also promises his infinite reception, his infinite reception. And I will give him a stone, a white stone, and a new name written on it, the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Back in Bible days when people would become very, very close friends, they would enter into a covenant relationship with another person. And the way you express that friendship is you took a stone, smooth stone, and you cut it in half, and you wrote your name on one half and the person's name on the other half, and you exchanged it. One Marine told me this was the basis for uh, coin exchanges. I I've never been able to prove that, but... Uh, it's interesting, but you are basically saying, I've covenanted with you. You and I are friends. I will see you through thick and thin. You didn't do that with anyone. 
And on it, Jesus said, I will give you this stone and there'll be a new name. And someday when you get to heaven, you'll have a new name and glory. God renamed a lot of people. Cephas became Peter. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Saul became Paul. It's a name of intimacy that no one else will know as we will see. But Jesus, you know, I, I, I have some names for my wife that no one else knows but me and her. Now, don't ask me after the service. <laughs> Jesus is saying to the overcomer, to the one who chooses to be in the center of his will, that there will be an intimacy. He promises the same thing in John 14, 21, that when you obey him, he reveals himself to you. And I want to tell you, there is nothing more fulfilling in this life than to walk with the living God. To know Him, for Him to reveal Himself to you. And the cheap substitutes that the devil will try to convince you as being better will rob you of real life. Now, if you've never met Him, I'd like to introduce you to Him. And the only way I can introduce Him to you is through a second birth. You must be born again. And just like the children of Israel believed what God said and they looked at the brazen snake on the pole and they were instantly healed, you will instantly be saved if you will admit there's a problem that you're a sinner, but judgment was dealt with on the cross. And if you will believe on Jesus, he'll save you today. Holy Father, thank you for the chance to meet here today. Please be with us. I pray today for someone who has never met you, who is unsure of heaven. If they will look and live, they can be saved today. For you promised whoever will call in Jesus' name will be saved. Help them to believe what you said. Help them to believe that they can never earn heaven, that we are all unworthy sinners. And help them in simple faith to believe. Help someone else today, Father, who knows you, who maybe is on the edge or maybe in the midst of rebellion. Help us to hear what you've said, to repent, to make things right. Help us to ignore the cheap substitutes of the evil one and embrace your bounty. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.